Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Thames Valley Court and Crime Podcast. We've got more unbelievable crime stories from across Berkshire, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire again for you this week. And this time, our main talking point is a story that touches all three counties. As well as this, we'll be taking a slightly different turn in the podcast, looking at how the pandemic has affected prison life and the sentences judges hand out to criminals. You can find out more details on all the stories we're talking about on the Oxford Mail, Buxbury Press, Reading Chronicle, Bracknell News or Slough Observer. Uh, and like usual, uh, before we get started, let's let's reintroduce ourselves. So I'm Ollie, I'm the court and crime reporter for NewsQuest's Barcher Titles. That's the Reading Chronicle, Bracknell News, Slough Observer and Windsor Observer. And I'm George Roberts, I'm the crime and court reporter for the Buxbury Press. Tom can't be with us live this week, so he's uh, he's sent in a few voice clips um, from what he's been up to recently. Uh, so it's just me and, me and George uh, at the moment, but uh, you'll hear Tom's voice uh, very shortly. So our main topic this week revolves around the trial of a man named Daniel O'Hara Wright, who was on trial for murder at Oxford Crown Court last week. He killed his mother in an incident near Christmas Common in Watlington Hill, which is a is a location that kind of borders all three counties in, in the Thames Valley, so Berkshire, Oxfordshire and Buckinghamshire. Uh, Tom has been covering the trial. It's been a very bizarre and uh, disturbing one to read about for me personally, but um, Tom sent in a voice clip of, of uh, what happened during the trial and, and what the outcome of that was. This was quite possibly the most grotesque case I've ever come across in my years of covering criminal courts. And before the murder trial of Daniel O'Hara Wright began, the judge at Oxford Crown Court warned jurors that what they were going to hear over the next five days would be incredibly distressing. And he gave the jurors essentially a get-out-of-jail-free card. If you don't think that you're going to be able to listen to this, raise your hand now and um, you can recuse yourselves. Now, that turned out to be incredibly prescient because the next five days as I've said were some of the most distressing grotesque I've I've ever spent in a criminal court. Daniel O'Hara Wright was accused of murdering his mother Carol who's 62 um, in Christmas Common last October. The pair of them they enjoyed walking together they'd gone down to the National Trust beauty spot in the far corner of Oxfordshire for a walk on October 23rd they arrived at about 2.40pm and they parked up at the National Trust car park at Watlington Hill and they began their walk. Some stage they reached a fork in the path and, and Daniel's perception of his mother began to change. He was, as he would tell um, psychiatrists later, no longer his mother. He began to see her as a demon. Her hair changed, it went from grey to red, her eyes changed and he became convinced that she was trying to lure him down a path in this woodland to his almost certain doom. What Daniel did defies belief, frankly, but I think it's important to remember that he wasn't in a fit state of mind when he did it. He struck her repeatedly with sticks. He stamped on her body. He removed her eyeballs and he placed one of those eyeballs down her own throat, um, which is what the pathologists believe killed her. After this, he, he ran from the scene, 
Um, he threw himself in front of the path of a car. He told the driver that he'd fallen from heaven. He fled again. He stole a chicken. He bit the head off a chicken. He seems to, at some point, have climbed an electricity pylon and electrocuted himself so badly that one of his arms later needed to be removed. He then broke into a farmhouse um, whilst the elderly couple were in the pool. Um, he took a knife from the kitchen, he locked himself in the bathroom and then he further harmed himself. And it wasn't until later that evening that police, who were searching for him essentially because he'd been reported as a victim of a road traffic collision, police came across him in the bathroom and he admitted there that he believed he'd harmed his mother, although he made it clear that the person he had harmed was not his mother. And this is essentially what the trial boiled down to. Daniel and Hara Wright and his mother Carol had an incredibly loving relationship, by all accounts. <coughs> they, he would leave notes for her around the house that they shared in Uxbridge. Little things he would write on the underside of the tea bag box, um, I love you, so every time she went to make herself a cup of tea, she would get that rather lovely reminder. The day before her death, they'd travelled to Virginia Water in Surrey and posed for these incredibly happy selfies together. This was a loving couple. However, the signs were there. The um, O'Hara Wright's barrister, in his closing speech to the jury, likened it to um, the eruption of a volcano. What happened on the 23rd of October 2020 was like a volcano erupting. But in the months leading up to it, there had been the rumbles of an earthquake, just like you would get with a, a, an ordinary volcanic eruption. Um, Daniel had started hearing voices telling him to kill members of his family, and his behaviour had become increasingly erratic. He became obsessed by the QAnon conspiracy and other conspiracy theories. Um, uh, in March um, 2020, before the lockdown, his sister had taken him out for dinner, he described himself as an interdimensional shaman, um, and he'd shaved his head as, as well. Um, that said, he'd never had any interaction with mental health services whatsoever, which is somewhat surprising and, and rather shocking. Um, but what the psychiatrists believed had happened on the 23rd of October was a first-instance psychosis. So he, he'd killed his mother, essentially, in the grip of a psychotic episode um, where he did not believe that she was his mother and he did not understand what he was doing was wrong. Now, one of the psychiatrists, uh, a man called Dr Kennedy, who was instructed by the defence, tellingly told the jury last Wednesday that the defendant was one of the most psychotic people he had ever seen in 30 years of practice. And the prosecution's own expert followed that up later by saying, look, if the insanity defence to murder doesn't apply to Daniel O'Hara Wright, then it shouldn't apply to anyone. Everybody was in agreement that, that this man was insane. The only per people that needed to be convinced were the jury because it is a quirk of our English legal system that it's not a psychiatrist who can pronounce someone insane. It's not the barristers. It's not even the judge. It's a jury. And the question for the jury was this. Do you think that the defendant is not guilty of murder by reason of insanity? Or do you think he's guilty of manslaughter 
by reason of diminished responsibility. And it's a century and a half old concept, insanity, in legal law. Someone needs to be suffering from a recognised um, defect of the mind, a, a mental disorder, which there was agreement that he was, and they needed to not realise that what they were doing was wrong, essentially, that they were insane. And um, the jury, I think probably quite rightly in this case, found him not guilty of murder by reason of insanity. Now, Daniel O'Hara Wright wasn't there to hear the verdict. He's currently in Broadmoor, um, where he remains, and he's very, very ill. He came briefly on the first day before the jury um, were sworn in, and he only had one arm. He, his the remains. He was wearing a, a baggy grey prison jumper, essentially, um, and this lack of one arm was was very, very visible. He had shaggy brown, mousy brown hair, he had a shaggy beard, and he was flanked in the dock by, I think, four nurses and a doctor. Um, but his, his counsellors asked for him to appear um, for his, his disposal, essentially, so because he'd been found not guilty by reason of insanity, a judge has some uh, power over what, what happens next with his care, and it's expected that he'll remain in a um, psychiatric hospital for a very long time. And his, his Barristers and his doctors want him there because they think it's going to be important for his ongoing treatment and rehabilitation for him to to be able to hear the judge's disposal. I've um, I've spent many years, many hours, hours and hours and hours in courtrooms over the years, and I can honestly say the details in this case were among the most distressing I have ever heard in my life. And I can't imagine what it was like to be a juror on this case. Unimaginably difficult. I feel like I've got a fairly thick skin. I've had had it all pretty much um, since I first became a trainee reporter in 2017. Um, but there were things that were aired in this case that were completely new on me, and frankly, things that were said in this case that that were just too grotesque to print and will remain too grotesque to print or, or even to say, I suspect. Matricide, by its very nature, a little like a parent killing a child, is unnatural and, regardless of how we change it as a society, will remain one of the most unnatural crimes that it's possible to conceive. This was no different. This was literally a moment of madness that will have repercussions for the defendant, for the family, for the society, for wider society, and for the community, not just in Christmas Common where this alleged murder took place, but in Uxbridge where the Wright family live. Um, and I suspect society more widely it's an incredibly shocking case, but I think one needs to remember that Daniel O'Hara Wright was not in his fit state of mind at the time. He was not a well man, and it was not his mother that he thought he was killing. It was a demon. And as I think one of the psychiatrists said during the course of evidence, it's not unlawful to kill a demon. 
he was terrified he was genuinely terrified for his life the threat from this demon and he sought to dominate it and I think over five days we entered a dizzying and, and quite frankly terrifying world of what it's like to experience first instance psychosis and to have that fear hanging over your head of fighting for your life against somebody else and also to then be told later that it wasn't a demon you were killing it was your own mother and the sense of shock and remorse and upset that he subsequently felt after that astonishing case terrifying case and um, and one that I don't think I'll ever forget Just a quick note from me on the outcome of this trial Daniel O'Hara Wright was found not guilty of murder by reason of insanity At a hearing on December 21 he was given a hospital order requiring him to receive treatment at a secure psychiatric unit This means he will not be allowed out of hospital until the Secretary of State deems him to be safe The second part of this podcast revolves around COVID and how that has had an impact on the world of court and crime. Um, as all our listeners, I'm sure, are aware, the Omicron variant has meant that there are now more restrictions in England. People have been told they should work from home if they can. Uh, face coverings are compulsory in most indoor public venues. Uh, and as well as this, COVID parties will be needed for certain premises. But while most people might find these new rules quite tough and a hark back to those dreaded days of lockdown last year in 2020, uh, COVID has undoubtedly had an impact on prisoners and criminals who have been sent to prison. So what sparked this discussion this week was a tweet that we saw from a QC named Edward Henry. He said, he tweeted that he submitted to a judge in Reading earlier this year that conditions in British prisons were worse than they were in the 1840s. And he says this because uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, criminals who get sent down are in prison conditions where they're only allowed half an hour to an hour of time every day uh, outside of their cells because of the risk of the spread of COVID. It's, it's clear to see the point Edward Henry was making that uh, judges should uh, bear, bear the conditions in mind uh, when they are sentencing criminals and it's something that I see a lot when I'm in a sentencing hearing um, more often than not we'll, we'll hear a defence counsel say to the judge uh, you know, please bear in mind that, that, prison, that prisoners are only getting an hour a day at most outside of their cells and it's, it's incredibly tough for them at the moment uh, and that's, that's more often than not part of their mitigation and um, it's quite interesting to know the the case that they cite every time when bringing this up. So it's a case called R versus Manning. And I'm just going to take you through that now and how that has set a precedent for uh, how judges consider their sentences when, when deciding how long to send criminals to prison for. So this case, R versus Manning, is cited a lot because it revolves around the case where a defendant receives a reduced uh, prison sentence on appeal after representations were made uh, to the High Court judge to reduce the sentence because of the impact of prison life. So, March 2020 at Cardiff Crown Court, a man named Mr Jones was 
sentenced on one count of attempted burglary to eight months imprisonment and one count of possession of a Class A drug to no separate penalty. So he was given an eight-month sentence. This was then reduced on appeal. Uh, it was argued that the first sentence was excessive um, and on this second round it was argued that the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, was, was too harsh on prisoners. So uh, Defence Counsel for Mr Jones highlighted that he was sentenced on 17th March 2020, which was six days before the UK went into its first lockdown. Uh, the sentencing judge at the time was unaware of the serious impact this would have on UK prisons, uh, and the defence argued this was not taken into account when sentencing. Uh, the Court of Appeal was informed that Mr Jones was spending all of about 30 minutes each day locked, in, locked into his cell with social visits forbidden. So, reading from QSC.law uh, website, um, to quote Manning at the appeal hearing, uh, it, it was said that in, in the present exceptional circumstances, it is appropriate to take the conditions under which the applicant is presently held in custody into account. We do not criticised the judge for the sentence imposed because the judge was wholly unaware of the change in prison conditions that would arise just days after the sentence was imposed. So that was what was heard at the appeal hearing of uh, Mr James uh, and consequently the appeal was partially allowed. The court quashed his original eight-month sentence and, and put in its place a six-month sentence and that's that's according to QSC.law. Um, George, is it something that you've seen a lot where R versus Manning is, is cited in these in these sentencing hearings yeah definitely I mean obviously before 2020 it wasn't something we'd ever we'd ever heard of before it was you know it's, it's pretty new um, new precedent but yeah ever since Covid I think most if not all of the sentencing hearings I've been in the the defence barrister has, has brought up Arvey Manning um, you know in, in an attempt basically to, to sort of get the a little bit of time off taken off the sentence um, for, for their for their client, and you know the the judge is normally obliging. It, it's I, I guess it's it's never um, a huge discount. I, I don't know, Ollie, if you've had any kind of big ones, but for me, generally, it's like maybe they take like one month off a sentence, maybe yeah. two. Yeah, it's kind of like with um, when they plead guilty. It's like obviously you get. Uh, it, well, our listeners might not know this, but if uh, if if uh, those charged plead guilty at the first opportunity, they get 25% off their, their sentence most of the time. Um, it's, it's like that, again, like you say, it's, it's, they get uh, perhaps a little bit off their sentence or it might be in cases where it's more of a minor offence and the uh, defence barrister is, is, is pleading with the judge to impose a suspended sentence rather than a, an immediate custodial sentence. Um, it's, it's not something you would see in the bigger sentencing like for murder or anything like that where an immediate custodial sentence is inevitable where they're going to be spending a minimum of uh, upwards of 15 years in, in prison but it's it's something you'll see in perhaps like drug offence cases or um, harassment cases something like that uh, where either the judge might bear this in mind and, and thus impose a suspended sentence or as in the case of Mr Jones, as I mentioned, might take off a few months. But in my experience, whenever a judge has, has considered the, the barrister's remarks, um, they it's, it's something they mention, but it's, it's never the kind of central 
uh, mitigating factor that they take into account. It's it's something a bit on the side, you know. It's, it's something they consider, but it's not it's not the sole reason for imposing the uh, the more lenient sentence, if you like. Yeah, it's rarely a deal breaker, is it? It's it, I think in my experience, it's not something that would go from you know your your whole sentence wouldn't change just be just because of it, but maybe if you had that along with other mitigating circumstances maybe if someone was you know had a clean record when they when they committed the offence or mm. you know they were only 17 yeah. or something when they committed the offence that that you know all these sort of mitigating circumstances would combine, combine and yeah they would get generally a kind of a more favourable sentence like you say they might avoid having to go to prison they might get that suspended sentence or even if they do go to prison say it's you know, a, a, an eight month sentence like like the the guy in RV Manning, yeah. maybe it'll be it get sort of reduced to, to seven or or six yeah. months. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think it's it's worth saying that you know, um, obviously, some of the people who are being sentenced in these hearings that we sit on are you know not very nice people and, and probably do deserve uh, custodial time, time behind bars. Um, but similarly, you know, it's it's something that I'm judges that I'm sure judges do think about and it's something that it's you know definitely something I've thought about when when I've been in, in sentencing for uh, more minor offences you know to think about what prison life must be like at the moment um, you know to, to spend 23 hours a day in a, in a prison cell is it sounds absolutely awful um, I know I know as I said some of them probably do deserve uh, prison time for, for some of the more major extreme offences but um, you know, I think you know, looking back to lockdown, you know, we had you know chance to go walking about and whatever, and, and you know, I'm sure some people would have described that as, as being like in a prison. But um, you know, compared to what actually prisons are like now, you know, despite us coming out of official lockdown, um, I, it still sounds like it's 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 you know terrible conditions in there. Yeah, and one of the things as well that um, Edward Henry QC pointed out in his sort of Twitter. Um, thread um, rant <laughs> maybe it is another word for it yeah. is you know a lot of people that, that do end up in prison and, and a lot of people that we see um, who, who've committed petty crimes or, or you know sometimes something a bit more serious a lot of them are, are kind of struggling with things like autism ADHD you know dyspraxia etc you know lots of yeah. lots of you know depression and anxiety as well and these people need you know they're still responsible for the crimes that they've committed but they do also need help and sitting in a prison cell for 23 hours of the day it, there's no yeah, way the, there's no way that's going to help them rehab, not, not like a rehab a, a rehabilitation <laughs> tool is it you know to, to sit there for 23 hours a day is it so exactly and especially yeah. you know in prison prisoners often have access to you know drugs and things like that and you end up in a bit of a downward spiral I, I can't imagine can't imagine how how you know horrific it can be in some places. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's worth mentioning as well uh, the impact COVID has had on the court system. Um, both George and I have, have sat in on trials recently, uh, where because COVID has got a little bit worse recently, and in in the winter, um, where trials have just been jeopardised or not completely jeopardised, but um, uh, like almost to an extent. Um, Torpedo because of, of the impact of, of COVID. So, um, for example, uh, there was one trial that both George and I covered a little bit. Uh, the trial of um, O'Neill Joseph, who 
uh, stabbed, fatally stabbed a man named Yannick Capito in Reading in February. Uh, that trial was, was due to start, if I remember correctly, start of October, and it, it didn't get started for uh, two and a half weeks, I think, because um, one of the defendants got COVID, uh, one of the lawyers got COVID, um, and you know it just shows the backlog that's created because because of coronavirus. Uh, it's, it's quite crazy, really, isn't it? And I'm sure you've experienced it in, in some of your trials as well. George. It is crazy, yeah. I mean, just just going back to that, um, the, you know, the Yannick Capito um, sort of murder trial. Uh, yeah, I sat in that for a little bit um, as well. And the, on the day I was there, we we kind of heard from from one of the lawyers that one of the defendants um, had had a sort of positive lateral flow test and this was on a Friday and so in the hearing the judge was like oh okay that's not great um, you know we need to hear back about the PCR test soon and then what they sort of did was they just kind of planned out the, the next you know Monday Tuesday Wednesday just sort of assuming that the PCR test would come back negative and that they'd just be able to carry on I know that um, that lateral flow tests are not as seen as reliable as PCR tests, and I don't know what their efficacy rate is, but I think it's still you know kind of over the the eighty percent mark. So I think I was a bit sort of surprised and just thought it was a a little bit way a, str- a little bit strange for them to basically just act like things would just go be fine and that it would go away um, even though surely when someone gets a, a lateral flow test you should be kind of preparing for the worst not, not assuming that, that, that things would, would would go okay and you know surprise surprise this guy came back with a positive PCR test he had COVID and so then it put the trial back at you know 10, 10 working days or you know 10, 10 days while he was um, you know had to self-isolate etc and yeah I think obviously that the court's it's quite well known that the courts are really struggling with a, with a huge backlog. Yeah. You know, in some places, it's like a year or more. You know, in terms of people getting in, getting into court, and you yeah. know, after the, after an offence has been committed or allegedly committed, and it's just that the judges are often often com- complain, and you know, and rightly so that when there's a delay, because you know they they have to to bear the brunt of that pressure. That they're the ones that are responsible for for seeing the the, the backlog. Um, getting, getting through the backlog but I just thought it was really really um, a strange way to proceed when maybe they could have just put the trial on hold for a couple of weeks and, and seen mm. a few other things in court you know I'm, yeah. I'm not there for those conversations behind the behind closed doors or whatever but maybe it's maybe it's more complicated than that but for me I, yeah. I thought no, it's, it's not really fair on the defendants is it like if you've been accused of a crime mm. uh, it's a, if you know if it's a fairly serious crime um, and you're waiting you know, two, three weeks for your trial to get started, and all the while you're you're sitting in custody, kind of, uh, you know, wondering which way it's going to go. I suppose um, mm. it's not really fair on them, um, but at the same time, it's, it's like it's COVID is so rampant at the moment that it's it's hard to kind of see a, a coherent way through it. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's, it's COVID is, is definitely affecting the, the world of court and crime. It is, might not be visible to uh, the public um, as much as it is to, to George and I and, and to Tom as well. Um, but it's definitely there and it's definitely having an effect. Yeah, definitely. And you can even see it, you know, going back to the stuff with, with COVID in prisons. I mean, obviously we don't really, we don't go, go in the prison ourselves. But even in the courts... You, you can you can see and you you hear things 
that, that things are not are not going well. Yeah. I mean, there was one there was one trial I was I was following, you know, a couple of months ago. It was it was a murder trial and, and it was really big. There were eight defendants who were all kind of being brought in from prison every day to, to go into court, and basically, prisoners um, before they appear in court every day, they're supposed to take a lateral flow test, um, you know, just to make sure they're not bringing. COVID into into the court, and sort of one of the days, a couple of weeks into the trial, one of the one of the barristers representing one of these um, defendants sort of stood up and said to the judge, "Oh, Your Honour, it's been it's been brought to my attention that my client hasn't been receiving any COVID tests before appearing in court," um, and I think it kind of became sort of you know the other the other guys were like, "Oh yeah, I, I don't think that's been happening for my." for my client either and it kind of puts put the judge in a really awkward position where everyone knows that basically they're in a real hurry to just get get through it get through the trial get the result and move on to the next one while obviously yeah. giving ensuring that there's a fair trial but when the judge is being told that basically the, the due process isn't being followed and that these people are potentially putting everyone in the court at risk uh, it puts them in a really sticky situation and yeah they, they did it's not that's kind of not really what they're there for, is it? It's not. No. They shouldn't be the kind of um, uh, the ones who oversee this this protocol. Really, it's like they're there to assist on the law and to yeah. you know make sure there are fair trials, as you say. But it's you know it's um it, it's quite tough. Uh, you know, I know it's it, COVID is so kind of um, ubiquitous and and you know it's hard to deal with. But at the same time, you know, you, you'd hope that. Our, our courts are, are dealing with this in the right way and, and, and sometimes it seems like that's not quite the case yeah I mean in this scenario you can't even really say it's the courts the courts fault exactly because these these guys are basically in, in holding cells and they're being kind of managed quite often they're being managed not even by the police but they're being managed by kind of private subcontractors you know companies like G4S etc so you know somewhere along the line the, the these people are not doing the things that they're supposed to do and and these defendants are not not getting tested and in this kind of in this case that that I'm talking about the judge was like look we just need to carry on Um, luckily there wasn't really there was no real cause for alarm in the end I don't think there were were any COVID um, problems in this trial and it was a long trial actually so in a way they were quite lucky but yeah, I think it was basically just like putting this kind of making a judge take a make a judgment call that's that's maybe not part of really their remit, and could potentially have some pretty pretty bad consequences. You know, if this becomes suddenly like a COVID rips through the rips through the trial and all the defendants get it and a bunch of you know um, lawyers get it as well. Because if the lawyers get it, then trials all all over the the, yeah. the country and the region will be put on hold, which would be a disaster. Yeah. And the CVP, which is the video link service that uh, the courts use, has come in handy uh, a lot of the time. Um, but in itself, it also presents its own problems. Like it's, it's like sure all of our listeners will have been on on those treacherous Teams Teams calls where it's you know Teams doesn't work or Zoom crashes or whatever. Uh, and you know that's that's it's been the case a few times as well where uh, it's it's quite tricky to get everybody on a CVP link um, when. Ideally, everybody should be in court. You know, that's the way it's always been. You know, defendants turn up to court, uh, lawyers turn up to court. It's the proper way to do things. Um, it, it's, it's an option for them, but it's it's not ideal. And I think um, a little bit of the kind of uh, the tradition and the the kind of legacy of, of 
of uh, court hearings is lost when it's um, it's, it's undertaken through CBP. Mm, that's true, and you can tell the judges, you know, really, really don't like using it when no, they, yeah, when they don't when they don't have to. Um, and you know, quite often the the barristers will be like, "Look, judge, I've got a um, hearing in Aylesbury uh, at, at nine, and then I've got another one in Reading at." Eleven, you know, can I appear at one of them over CDP? And the judge is always a bit like, mm, okay, fine, but you know, you can tell they're reluctant; they want people in court, which is understandable, yeah. I guess. Yeah. But having sat on these links, you know, I mean, you, you still get, you know, you can still hear what's going on, see what's going mm. on, and you know, I think it is necessary at the moment with, with, with COVID and with you know, with this new variant coming out, and a lot of places are, are upping their kind of vigilance. I think it, it, it is yeah. definitely going to be really essential. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how far CBP goes, um, not just in the short-term future, but in the long-term future, if, uh, you know, if, if we're not clear of COVID in the next few years, if it, if it might even be extended. You know, it'll be interesting, I, I can't see it ever happening, but it'll be interesting if it's ever a consideration for a jury to sit on CBP. Um, mm. I, can't, I can't really see that happening, but you know, if, if, it, if it did get so bad that the backlog was so bad and... and it was a necessity then um, then you know who knows maybe it'd be a possibility but it's, it seems very unlikely mm, and of course you know jurors aren't immune to COVID as well you know yeah. they can that, that's caused real issues in trials that I've sat in on as well where, some, where a juror has um, has kind of phoned in and said look my child has, has got symptoms they've got a cough and this was actually fairly early days uh, in COVID and the judge was kind of like well I'll leave it up to your discretion, which I think is putting like way undue mm. pressure on that juror because basically yeah. they're telling the juror like, look, your your child has got a cough. You can either come in um, and potentially infect everyone with whatever they've got, or you can stay at home and this trial might collapse. Which is like that's that's way that's way yeah, too much pressure for for one juror to be put under for for a member of the public who's, who's you know giving up their time to yeah to sit in the court it's, it's a bit bit too much isn't it as you say so yeah if they could appear a video link that would definitely um, that would definitely make things less complicated in that respect but then obviously there's always a risk that with a, yeah. with a jury you kind of need to know what they're looking at what they're seeing and you know if yeah. a juror's got like double screening that maybe they're watching the trial on one screen but then like reading you know reading a news article about it yeah, on the other absolutely. that's a huge prejudice risk might be in the room or something like that yeah so exactly there's, there's a risk for that yeah, it's been interesting to see how how um, the courts get out of this mess. Um, I know a lot of the Police and Crime Commission, the candidates, said that they wanted to clear the court backlog as part of their their, their mission and their their plan uh, in the Thames Valley. But um, not sure how that's going to be doable. I think it's easier said than done. But um, yeah, interesting to see how it how it unfolds. Mm, definitely. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's Tens Early Court and Crime podcast. Uh, it's goodbye from me and George. Um, this will be our last podcast for a little bit. We're taking a little bit of a break over the Christmas period, uh, but we'll be back in January for more news from the world of court and crime in the Thames Valley. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Cheers.